City University Television presents... The American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the Theatre. This seminar, Play Script Direct. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, which is located on 42nd Street, the heart of Times Square, the heart of the theatre. These seminars are offered as both an educational and an entertaining point of view of what it is to work in the theatre. From the point of view of the performers, the playwrights, the directors, the press agents, and the unions, and the guilds, and the set and costume designers. They stem from the Wing School. Um, many, many years ago, the Wing had a training school for returning veterans who came back and learned what it was to work in the theater. And that was all out of the concept of a woman named Antoinette Perry, for whom the Tony Awards are named. And although we are known for our Tony Awards, they are a wonderful award, and they are one of the most prestigious that can be given in the arts. However, they are given for the achievement of excellence in the craft of theater. Not the longest run or not the best reviews, but having achieved a degree of excellence in their craft. The Wing was started a long time ago, and all through the years we have maintained our commitment. The commitment to serve the community through the theater. We do this through our year-round programs, uh, hospital shows. We go to hospitals and nursing homes and aid centers to bring the magic of theater to those that can't go out to it. We have these seminars in which we hope to give you an idea of the importance of the theater and the people that work in it. We have had the very best and we've had the youngest and we've had the newest and we've had the legendary ones on the program, all sharing their knowledge with each other and with you. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theatre Wing and I am very proud to be able to present these seminars at this time. I would like to turn this over now to Brendan Gill, who is an, a critic, a writer, and a legendary figure with the New Yorker magazine and around town. And George White, who is president of the O'Neill Theater Center. Between the two of them, I think they will get wonderful, wonderful nuggets of information out of this, this seminar, which is on the playwright and the director. Thank you for coming, and it is now up to you, Brendan. Yeah. On my farthest uh, right, uh, geographically, and I'm sure not politically, uh, <laughs> is, is Larry uh, L. King, who, with Peter Masterson, wrote this season's uh, Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public and wrote 
earlier on at the best little whorehouse in Texas. There's the hint of echolalia there in part, I think, because of the great success of the earlier work, and why not? Uh, Barry is uh, a well-known author of many, in many forms of, of literary endeavor. Uh, next to uh, Larry is Lonnie Price, who is the current director as well as co-writer of Sally Marr and her escorts, and has, uh, in my little card says he's enjoyed a long career as an actor on Broadway and in film. It is not possible for someone so young to have enjoyed a long career, or whatever it may be called. Uh, and then uh, is next is Martin Charnin, director of the Roundabout production of The Flowering Peach. No, the National Actors Theater. It's not the Roundabout. Oh, well, I'm sorry for the mistake that's been Forgive made me. here. Uh, naturally, I am blameless. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I have had almost 80 years of life always blameless. Uh, anyway, uh, of the flowering peach and this uh, lyricist, composer, and librettist. Now, you can't do better than that. Uh, and then, I hope I am correct in identifying Robert Jess Roth as making his Broadway directorial debut with Beauty and the Beast. And he co-wrote and directed Theatre Works USA production of The Secret Garden. There you are, George. Take on. Thank you, Brandon. And over. Um, on my downstage left is uh, uh, the gentleman who is representing the uh, fraternity of dramaturgs. That is not a dirty word, actually. And we'll hear more about that. Is Ernest Shear, who is the director of the National Critics Institute at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, and uh, was one of the most and prominent um, out-of-town critics. Was known as Shear of the Bulletin back when there was a bulletin. Um, and next to him is Peter Masterson, who has acted and directed in, um, uh, extensively in, in stage and film and uh, is the director and co-writer of The Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public uh, and was the director of The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Isn't it nice we can even save the title nowadays in this maturing society <laughs> Thank on you television? Uh, and uh, on his right is uh, Aaron Sanders, who wrote uh, uh, Sally Marr and Her Escorts and has for the past four seasons been the literary manager and dramaturg, again that word, uh, for the second stage theater. On his right is uh, Taswell Thompson, artistic director of the Syracuse Stage and adjunct professor in drama at Syracuse University and is former artistic associate and resident director with Washington's Arena Stage. And on my immediate left is Bob Marshall, who is a choreographer who is represented this year in, on Broadway with three, three shows, Kiss of the Spider-Woman, uh, She Loves Me, the revival of She Loves Me, and the revival of Damn Yankees. Well, well done. <laughs> Isabel found herself astonished and I think dismayed to discover that this is the first time we've had an all-male cast up here. And as I glance around, we look rather like a rose gallery or some kind of criminal lineup. And although, as I said a moment ago, I'm blameless, I have the strongest sense that I'm guilty of something being among all these faces. As Brendan Martin said, we are, this, this should be called Lay Boys. <laughs> I think that uh, this is a wonderful opportunity to see what the men can do without the women. Oh. <laughs> and so we expect you to just go out full force. Yes, be intensely competitive. Uh, well, one of the things that is true about this uh, whole group is the degree to which uh, they evince the fact that theater is a collaborative enterprise. And uh, at an earlier 
gathering last fall, we had, on the one hand, Edward Albee, and on the other, Tony Kushner. And there was Edward Albee, who believes in the playwright solely at work, finishing his manuscript, not letting anybody have any effect on it, whatever, until the last possible moment when it goes into rehearsal. On the other side was Tony Kushner, equally distinguished, equally gifted, who believes that the, that the play is a collaborative effort all the way along, building, slowly accumulating into something. Now, I'd like to start with Larry uh, L. King. Uh, that L is a critical matter, which he may go into later in our program. Uh, this is a formal collaboration between you and Masterson. Right. Uh, and how does it work? Well, uh, it works fairly well uh, because I tend to lose my temper and shout and curse. <laughs> and uh, Pete is a very calm fella. And what he teaches me by example is that all my anger goes to waste on him. So I, I learn not to do it. But collaboration is an unnatural act. Somebody once said it's like three people getting together to make a baby. And it seems to me that uh, I enjoy working alone better than I do working with other people, although, you know, I love you, Pete. But uh, I, I'm more at ease writing my non-musical plays, which my lawyer who's also my wife and agent, calls my $300 plays, bless her heart. Uh, so uh, I'm in musicals for money, and Pete helps me, and Tommy Coon helps me, and Carol Hall helps uh, let me Let me have uh, Pete pick up on that. How about you? What, what about your side in this collaboration? How is, how is that working? And tell us about it. Well, I, there's so many disciplines involved in uh, making a musical that uh, for one person to try to do it all, it seems to me very difficult. And... Uh, We've tried to use the, the expertise of a lot of different people. Carol Hall writes the music and the lyrics, and uh, sometimes she asks us to tell us what the song's about, tell her what the song's about, or sometimes even write down ideas for the songs. And Larry and I uh, will make a, uh, a collaborative uh, um, outline for the entire piece, and then we'll... He'll write a scene, I'll write a scene, he'll, I'll rewrite his scene, he'll rewrite mine, and we just pass it back and forth until we feel like we're getting somewhere. And Tommy Toon's been very involved in, in uh, the, um, uh, the, the overall production of, of, of the thing with ideas uh, for uh, the script, too. So, I mean, it's been a very big collaboration, very wide collaboration. Two or three years of work, which is, again, a musical takes three a long time. Three and a half usually. years. Well, that takes a October long. 1990, whatever that, however long ago that was. A long time. That's when I called oh, Larry. Oh, yeah. Is that said, for you each do one this. of the whorehouses, or just? No, just, <laughs> just our new whorehouses. This is going to be one of those days. <laughs> the other one took two years, I think. Two, right. Two and a half years. Have but you we, worked with anyone else, either one of you? Have, no, I haven't. Uh -huh. as, have as in a musical? No. no. I've worked with Horton Foote in films and plays, but I've never worked with the, um, uh, and other writers as, as that way. But we've, I've never written with uh, anybody else. Uh -huh. I haven't, nor have I. But in the case of Beauty of the Beast, for example, how long has that taken to engender? Uh, about two and a half years. We started on Thanksgiving of 91. Mm -hmm. And how collaborative an effort is that? Oh, extremely. Uh, uh, and interesting for me because my collaborators were spread out. Uh, Tim Rice, our, uh, who wrote the lyrics to the new songs, uh, lives in London. Uh, Alan Menken, the composer, lives in upstate New York. Uh, Linda Wolverton, the book writer, lives in Los Angeles. So <laughs> we would uh, come together in a city for a time, you know, uh, a week or ten days, and work very uh, intensely and make big lists of things, all sorts of stuff. Then we'd split up to the 
corners of the globe and then do a lot of faxing, a lot of talking on the phone. So it was an interesting, different way uh, for me to collaborate. I've not done long-distance work like that before. And then, yeah, actually, a fax is, I would think, the indispensable, because along with everything else as far as scene design or blocking or anything like that, you can actually do it with fax. All the designers, thank God, were here with me in New York, because I don't <laughs> think you can fax the number of blueprints and <laughs> design drawings we had. Uh, but yeah, no, it was but totally scene, indispensable. And the scene, scene designer was who? Uh, Stan Meyer. Mm -hmm. His name is Anna. Talk about a collaboration. We've been uh, working together for 10 years. I met Stan uh, at Rutgers University, where we both went to uh, school. And uh, this is like our, I don't know, 17th or 18th thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's an interesting thing, too, when you work with someone that long. We have real shorthand and, uh, you know, no ego, which really, my whole team was really pretty great. We were good about commenting on each other's work in a nice, free way, which I think was. If you have no ego, you should give your bodies to the Yale Medical School and find out how that happened. Oh, my God. There is one thing, I'm, just a moment, to, to pick up, because I'm also, when you were doing this, and I think it will come up more probably in other uh, of our seminars, but uh, you had, and I don't think it is the specter, but you knew that the, the cartoon, uh, the animation was out there. Yes. And how did that affect both the collaboration and what you were doing it because there was something that was already a uh, success and was mm. up and going and this is new work obviously and uh, well we knew that uh, it didn't really affect the collaboration in any way that I can think of really we knew when we started that we had this immensely popular story uh, with characters that are loved the world over so we knew we didn't want to change that that's what people that is Disney's Beauty and the Beast so we knew that we also knew that we had to have a lot more uh, dimension to the characters and a lot more songs to m make it a full evening of theater. So we kind of, I know Linda, who wrote this, Linda Wolverton is the book writer, she wrote the screenplay as well. She relished the opportunity to kind of go back in there, because animation is all really shorthand. I mean, if musical theater book writing is shorthand, animation screenwriting is really shorthand. And so she was really excited about being able to delve back into her own thing, kind of expand it and flesh out the characters some. And uh, I know that Alan um, and Howard Ashman, who wrote the uh, original six songs for the film, um, really wanted to find a way to have the Beast sing in the movie, and they tried a couple of things, and it just didn't fit in an 80-minute animated film. And so uh, we... I tell you, answered the question. I that's right. Like no, that's exactly <laughs> right. Okay, fair the, enough. The, the, uh, when we were talking <coughs> with Burke Moses and Susan Egan, and they were saying one of the oddities of Beauty and the Beast is you have two kinds of audiences. You have the matinee yeah. audience with a lot of children, and then you have the adult audience at night. And that the children tend to take charge of things that they often interrupt or identify things. We've a lot of little uh, girls end up sitting right behind our conductor, Michael Cosman, and they want to talk to Belle very, very badly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so they try to, uh, you know, Belle. Yeah. They try to get her attention. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's definitely uh, an interesting, they're very different audiences. Yeah. And it's going to run for what, 10 years? Oh, years? please. I, uh, <laughs> it's what it's meant to do, it should do. Well, How long you. has Cats been running? I don't know. Nine years? 11. 11. 11 years. Somebody said that T.S. Eliot, Eliot never had any money in his life. 
And uh, somebody said that his widow has, has received so far $17 million in royalties. Uh, and it's perfectly wonderful. If only there were heaven and Elliot was looking down and saying, am I a rich man? <laughs> Not the way it is. But now tell me about your long career in, in the theater. How, did, how can you have had a long one? Well, I, I guess I started pretty early. Um, gosh, uh, when, I was, uh, when I was 15, I worked for Hal Prince uh, in his office as an office boy uh, during uh, when they were preparing Pacific Overtures. Uh, so I kind of feel that that's kind of the beginning of um, of uh, my car career, and, and then I, I went to a performing arts high school in uh, Juilliard, and I started acting when I was uh, very young, uh, when I got out of school, and um, I, I played Master Harold and Master Harold and the Boys, and uh, the uh, Prince Sondheim Merrily We Roll Along, and uh, a musical called Rags, and um, let's see, I replaced and burned this Lanford Wilson's play. Uh, so I've been acting for uh, for quite a while, doing films mm -hmm. and television and that sort of thing. And then uh, you will embrace more and more activities in regard to the theater besides acting. Yeah, well, I was... Do you uh, have a program? Uh, well, I, I started directing up. I was working for the American Jewish Theater. I was doing a play called The Immigrant. Uh, I was acting in it, which is uh, quite a lovely play, actually. And um, they had a musical that they were scheduled to do next, uh, which was a revival of uh, George Abbott's The Education of Hyman Kaplan, which was an unsuccessful musical in 1968 had the misfortune of opening the night Martin Luther King was shot and uh, the um, the critics apparently ran up the aisle in the middle of you know had gotten word and uh, anyway I don't necessarily think that's why the musical didn't do very well <laughs> however it's that was the legend and uh, I gave some suggestions for directors and uh, the, the artistic director Stanley Breckner said well what about you and I had uh, truly never thought about directing before mm -hmm. and uh, immediately I went well why not how exciting I was about to do a, a theater piece down the road so I had a commitment later so I had this window of time and uh, uh, the first, the reason I kind of liked directing was I was on stage at a uh, dress rehearsal and um, a woman came on stage, one of the actresses, and wore the ugliest dress I'd ever seen. And I said to the costume designer, that's the ugliest dress I've ever seen. And the next day it was gone. And another dress appeared. And I thought, oh, I could like this. this is <laughs> As an actor, you're always going, excuse me, could, you know, please, you know, I really hate this. And, you know, six weeks later, the show closes and nothing's been done about it. But as a director, I really enjoyed that kind right. of uh, power. So, um... I started directing and uh, was fortunate to uh, do uh, The Rothschilds, which, uh, which became a hit, and that, that made me a director. And uh, that's, uh, I feel very grateful for that. It's nice to be on the other side. Aaron, tell us about that collaboration, your collaboration, because you're working together here. Right. That well, Lonnie and Joan Rivers and I met actually through Second Stage Theater, mm -hmm. where, the, uh, where I had pursued the property uh, as in, in my capacity as literary manager and the dramaturg there. And it had a, a very brief time that it was sort of um, housed there and then left, and I left with it. Um, I had worked with... We stole you away, actually. <laughs> I had worked with Lonnie and Joan as a dramaturg and helped Lonnie to shape the material somewhat and had gone as far as I could without putting pen to paper and kept dropping hints here and there that I was also a writer and would love an opportunity to try writing a few scenes. and. That led to uh, to just that to writing first couple of scenes and future involvement future involvement until we were a full blown collaboration the three of us working very tightly together on the script all the face to face in your case you were able to be all right together. we're all here yeah it started Joan had acquired the property she had acquired the woman's right uh, the rights to the woman's life Sally Marr who's Lenny Bruce's mother is what the play is based on and uh, it was going to be a film for a long time and then mm -hmm. she had the notion to make it into a play. Mm -hmm. That's really, she brought me into it at that point. Um, so after we, I think probably offering it to every director in town. And, um, and then... And every writer. And, and probably, yeah. 
So that, now, the gestation of that was two or three years, probably, and it sounds like it. Yeah, it's about two and a half years for me, and Aaron's on it. About uh, two. Almost two years, yeah. And But she's had the material for, what? Seven. Seven years. Is that and normal? I've been hearing this two and a half, three and a half years. Is that normal for the development of a play from the beginning, the first draft, to the stage? I would say it's probably different for everybody, but uh, it seems like musicals need to evolve longer than the plays because generally you don't see in straight plays the same kind of collaboration on the script itself. Uh, this is a different kind of piece that way and the play itself like Lonnie has, has pointed out uh, often is like a musical in the way we have structured it. It's very flowing, it's, it's uh, hopefully very seamless. It's what, 38 scenes now? 38 scenes. Yeah, so it's and uh, a lot of transitions and it's uh, a big part of the work has been to make it flow and and feel as if we're not going lights down lights up with a new scene the conceit of the play is it's a one-woman play she's the only one who speaks but there are three escorts we call them because the woman was a had a comedy act called sally moore and her escorts and there are three other characters who play every other character in her life but they don't speak so she's, she relates to them, and yet they are ghost figures through her life, and there's a live band on stage. So it's a very kind of strange, hybrid sort of thing um, that we're doing. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's working. Well, yeah, I hope so. Is. I yeah, hope yeah. it's yeah. interesting. It has, to keep, it just has to keep moving, but it does. It does. It does. Oh. She does a wonderful job in it. Yeah, well, she's, she's terrific. Mm. Yeah. We are oh, putting in uh, three new scenes today, so I hope she's busy <laughs> back there learning them. Um, <laughs> But, yes, she's terrific. But, but, and and uh, her control of the amount of energy required from changing the different ages of the character and all the rest of the things like that, are, a very subtle thing to have to do, as, as well as, I would think, exhausting. Oh. She's got more energy than, <laughs> more necessary more energy than anybody. But that was one of the challenges that we faced working on it, was we knew who was going to star in it. We, we knew, you know, how, figured out how to work with her and create a piece that showcased her strengths. And... I think we were all, you know, happily amazed at her abilities and energy. But it really is like tailoring very a suit for someone right. very particular. And right. there's uh, right. uh, other scenes would have been written differently. But when you have Joan, these are her strengths. Mm -hmm. How do we how do we capitalize on those? And um, as Aaron said, she has many of them. So it, it gave That's us a very old-fashioned thing in, in, in the 19th century. Uh, vehicles, so-called, yes. were always being written for That's particular right. stars for their strengths and, and avoiding their weaknesses. And then that went out, and I think the playwrights began to began rather haughty about it, as if they should do a work of art that wouldn't require, you know, the tailoring to anything. Yes. Uh, but I believe in this other principle. I think it works fine. Mm -hmm. It's probably more more focused and playing to that strength. I wanted to bring up, since we've been banding about the word dramaturg for a bit, um, uh, and preface this by saying that Edith Oliver, the critic uh, and Brendan's colleague at the New Yorker, once defined dramaturg like an old-fashioned washing machine that had a ringer which had a crank on the side and Edith once said the dramaturg is the crank on the side well um, anyway uh, uh, that being the case uh, I wanted to uh, Ernest Shear talk a little bit about just the the dramaturgical function I know it goes back the phrase goes back to Bertolt Brecht and literary manager but it's, it's mutated over the years. So, Ernie, if you could just talk a little bit about the function of a dramaturg generally. It's not logical. All right. <laughs> I mean, there's no, no aspect that's logical. Well, it varies uh, from theater to theater and situation to situation. 
I don't think a literary manager is quite a dramaturg or a dramaturg is ever quite a, a literary manager. Uh, my broadest definition worked out simply for myself in terms of my own work at the O'Neill and for Pan-Asian Repertory. Uh, the dramaturg is an advocate for the playwright and sometimes he needs to be actively that or he's a mother or he's an emergency medical service. Uh, <laughs> almost any kind of uh, uh, supply-side human need uh, is called into play. Uh, but what I'd like to emphasize is that uh, Dramaturg is not a play doctor. He's not concerned with writing or rewriting the playwright's work in, in any situation. It can be interpretive or analytical. Mostly I work by asking questions and, mm -hmm. um, of, of the playwright and, and try to support the playwright and help him get on with his work and to achieve his own vision. And that's and, very early on you do uh, that. You do that very early on, at the very beginning, you, you, or all the uh, way through. I, I work mostly with new scripts either in development or in translations or adaptations. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, and then you disappear. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the um, um, descriptions of, of a dramaturg is that the dramaturg is the last one hired and the first one fired. <laughs> and that, I think, uh, is generally true throughout the country. But I've mostly worked with... Uh, New scripts, Brendan. And Aaron, that's true for you too? Uh, yeah, with, well, mostly with new scripts. Uh, the, the, the dramaturg will be different on every production, depending somewhat on the needs. Uh, I, the short definition I use uh, is sort of the theatrical equivalent of, equivalent of an editor uh, on, a, on a production. You, you give suggestions of, of cuts or suggestions of changes. But again, it's very clearly you're not you're not a play doctor at all. That's, you're not there to fix something. You're there to give insight into what the playwright is trying to achieve and if the play is achieving that, that goal. Uh, I take both titles of second stage literary manager and dramaturg because I see them as very different. Uh, the literary manager manages the literary office, handles the submissions, handles play development, and the dramaturg works in production. And As George said, I think there's going to be a lot of that later on and a lot of questions for you because this comes up in almost every seminar. Mm -hmm. I know this has been wonderful explanations of it. It's not quite. There's still more we want to know about it. But here is Martin here all by himself and Taswell all by himself too, Ron all by himself. So how do we start them? talking about what it is to work. Oh, well, Martin's we're so shy, we'll draw you out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah, you are collaborating with, it, sadly, a ghost of Clifford Odets, who died in 1962. Yes. <laughs> On day one of rehearsal, I said there are, there, there are no notes, no cliff notes, actually, uh, and very little information. A lot of anecdotal material about that play. Uh, which is the which was the flowering peach? It uh, was the last play that Clifford wrote before he before he uh, went back to Hollywood, um, and it was uh, a blessing in one instance to be able to manipulate the material to some extent to make certain cuts without having to uh, having to collaborate. 
in the short, brief period of time that, that, that we had to get the play on, but it was disastrous when many mysterious lines surfaced or moments or beats, and uh, I would be, I would have to confront Eli Wallach or Ann Jackson or any of the other actors on the stage uh, with 11 answers for why, uh, why am I doing this? Uh, what does he mean? And it is a mystery play. It's a very strange play. Uh, I've had a long association with that play. It was the first play I ever saw uh, back in 1954. I'd seen only musicals up until that time, and I'd seen uh, Menasha Skolnick yeah, do, fantastic. Do, mm -hmm. the, do the play. And I saw it nine times. Uh, I have to ask why. Well, mostly because... He reminded me of, of my father. Uh, Skolnick's performance. My, my father um, was feisty and intractable, and uh, and and spoke with uh, uh, an accent similar to Mel Brooks's two thousand year old man, uh, and was violent and passionate and docile. And my father was crazy. Uh, <laughs> in the same way that 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 Skolnick was crazy, and in the same way that Odette's portrayal of a patriarch in a Jewish family was crazy mm -hmm. and uh, unexplainable, his motives, his actions, his behavior was unexplainable, and I really identified with this character. Uh, I, as I said, I saw the play a great many many times, and it 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 just stuck with me, and then. In the 60s, when I started to write and direct musicals, uh, I went to Richard Rodgers and Peter Stone, and the th we, we optioned The Flowering Peach and turned it into a musical, which mm -hmm. was written specifically, tailored for Danny Kaye. Two by two. Two by two, which got us into the worst kind of trouble in terms of exactly what your the problem that you guys now confront in terms of tailoring a piece of material uh, for an individual performer. Because two by two is the least performed by virtue of the fact that it was so tailored to the specific madnesses of Danny Kaye that the stage directions were printed that way, there's material in the script, there's stuff in the score that invariably made it impossible for anybody else to do it. And so when one now does two by two, they extrapolate all of that stuff that is simply only things that belong to that very special and unique uh, character that Danny Kaye would, was, was, uh, it would, that was created for. I then came full circle to do, a, to direct the play upon which the musical had been based, and Eli Wallach was now playing the play in an entirely different way. And my ghost was not Menasha Skolnick, not my father. It was Danny Kaye, <laughs> which I had, a, and it was a very difficult, difficult task. I mean, I needed 5,000 hours of rehearsal in order to finally solve this play, especially given the fact that there was no collaborator. Mm -hmm. I'm desperate always for a collaborator. I mean, it is the most uh, satisfying experience in the world to be able to sit in a room. Uh, you're right about egos. There, there have to be no egos. You have to be able to sort of be a sponge. You have to be able to 
I, I, I also started out as an actor, and I just rem- will very quickly talk about where ideas can come from or should come from. I did a review. I did two shows in my life. I was in the original company of West Side Story, and then I was Dick Van Dyke's understudy in a show called The Girls Against the Boys, which starred Burt Lahr and Nancy Walker. <laughs> Shelley Berman and Dick Van Dyke. Those were the four principals in the show. And we ran three weeks in Philadelphia and a week in New York. It was not a successful review. But Burt Lahr was a great teacher, even in the brief period of time that one had to, to work with him. Uh, and, and I remember once going into the men's room of the Erlanger Theater, and he was washing his hands and talking to the janitor, or whoever was, who was filling the soap receptacles, and saying to him, well, do you think I should make the exit from the left side of the stage? (laughs) And the guy was saying, well, Bert, I think it would be funnier if you didn't cross Nancy Walker. And the next night, or that night, that did go in, and it worked, and it was better. So the only point that I'd make is that collaboration is really collaboration. And indeed, the orange juice salesman can sometimes point out something to you that, uh, that, that you have absolutely lost total sight of or control of. Mm-hmm. That's very yeah. interesting. Taswell, um, picking up on that, um, that, that you are, how do you tend to work as, uh, collaboratively or not? Or, have, you know, dead, dead playwrights versus live playwrights? you want to talk a little bit about that? I love process? having a live playwright in the room and a dramaturg and the designers and actors. I... Have you been an actor? Yes, I started as an actor. Mm -hmm. And I was terrified as an actor constantly. In the middle of the day when I knew I had to do a performance at 8 o'clock, my entire day was ruined. (laughs) Um, It was was something that I always felt I wanted to do. My grandmother was an actress. Uh, She was in the original company of Shuffle Along and Brown Sugar on Broadway. And so I heard all kinds of wonderful stories growing up. And I was attracted to the theater early on, my father a musician. But as an actor, I just never enjoyed it. And I was always getting work. So I was in constant <laughs> pain. Um, Maybe that's the key. <laughs> but I'm, I'm very happy to have gone through that process as an actor, because it's very helpful in working with actors. I think. Are I, you scared of directing actors? No, I love it. I, 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 um, taught for a while after I left acting, and that was great also. Um, So I think the part of me that's the main part of me now that's the director uh, enjoys um, having to act the roles with the actors and to instruct them, to teach them, uh, to be there for them. But I love the collaborative um, work with with all the elements and uh, I don't particularly want the actors to speak to the janitor or the uh, <laughs> orange juice salesman, but I agree with Martin that you can get all of that stuff from, from anybody, and I love that. Um, at Syracuse Stage, we have, unfortunately, very few weeks of rehearsal. So I think having a dramaturg early on, when you know what you're going to do in the season, and the dramaturg does all of that wonderful research and gathering of 
of music and magazines and books and poetry and, and anything that can influence um, What kind help. of plays are you doing at Syracuse? Well, this past season I did three new plays. A new play by Joanna McClellan Glass called If We Are Women and uh, a new play by Cheryl West called Holiday Heart and a new play by um, uh, M. Scott Mamaday, the Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, his first play, a uh, Native American writer called The Indolent Boys. And uh, we did also um, the Woody Guthrie musical, American Song, and of course, A Christmas Carol. And we have, uh, we did Our, uh, our Town, and now we have Under the Eccentric uh -huh. at the theater. Boy, that's a big program. Yes. Tremendous. Well, and our subscribers were right with us. We had 178 inches of snow. <laughs> yes, that's right. And they just plowed through and they go through it. How long do they run? The we run a month for each uh, Free show. Unfortunately, we only have three weeks of rehearsal. Wow. That's a system that started, I think, about <coughs> five or six years ago. Do you use ago. local performers? Or? No, we, we cast out of New York. Mm -hmm. um, do you also, as a director, uh, Picking up from what Lonnie had said, also uh, uh, enjoy a certain amount of that power having been the actor with the rotten uh, costume. Well, what I like even more is I like running a theater, and I never thought I would like that either, um, but I really do. Um, I, I started as artistic director. This is my second winter. I look at it in winters. <laughs> and uh, I love it, and I do, yes, the power feels good. But I think I have good taste, and I think I, I'm strong in what I know, what I want, and uh, I like shaping things and changing things, and I like affecting change. And so I'm having a, a good time. And right, it's, it's I'm, I'm responsible not only for what's on stage, but for whether the theater's too hot and too cold, and whether the toilets are overflowing. <laughs> and, and I answer every letter that a subscriber writes, whether it's a complaint or a praise. So, I like it. I like the, the producing side of it very much. That's the body that you go to Yale. Rob, when you collaborate, of course, you have lots of people with whom you have to collaborate. Not only, I mean, obviously your dancers, your performers, but also your director. How, tell us a little bit about the, the interaction between the choreographer and the director. Uh, and I guess the, the playwright to a degree, too, uh, although I, I assume that comes into it, plus all the people that you have to marshal and drill, literally. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Some people, uh, directors and so forth, don't know how to use a choreographer, I think. Um, a lot of people think that a choreographer does the steps <clears throat> or does the entertainment, mm -hmm. does the, and, and isn't connected to the play in some way. And what I find, of course, the, be the better director is and the better collaborators are people who involve the choreographer from the very beginning because good choreography you know I mean it's it's I don't know how to do that show choreography that doesn't connect to character and the story and the development of the piece in some way and so those are the those are the directors obviously that I like to work with and, and people that understand how that happens um, I was lucky enough to work with Jack O'Brien on Damn Yankees for instance and he's you know he, Whoever has the best idea in the room sort of wins in that sort of situation, you know. And there's no, there is no ego, you know. There's you sort of check it at the door and you can play. I mean, I really think that when you can go into a situation where you can literally play and be children and 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 let everybody sort of speak, 
it's a very different situation because you can really have the best product happen. And I, I you know, I sort of wish that I, you know, I, there have been directors that you've worked with, I've worked with, that say, okay, um, so what are the steps going to be, you know? Uh, or, or I'll go to an interview and they'll say, uh, so show me what you would do, you know, what, what steps you would do. <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, what, what do you mean? Can I get up and do a big six o'clock kick? I mean, I don't know what you want me to do. <clears throat> and so what you want to say to them is, this is part of the whole piece. And, you know, we've learned that. I mean, I think that's sort of an old-fashioned idea of, of how shows stopped and you danced and then the story continued. And... Um, does, that doesn't really work anymore. And it so, goes back to the oh, 18, 19th century or 18th century opera where you had to have the ubiquitous mm -hmm. uh, ballet exactly. in the middle of the story. You and, know, you I know, think that's the same it's, and, and ever since you know, Agnes DeMille, you know, things have changed, and it's still hard to connect that to some... some, but hasn't, some isn't it still part of the whole piece? Isn't it still part of moving the play along? The absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's... That's what that, that's what a, a good choreographer uh, can do to a piece. It can reveal character. It can it can uh, it can further the plot. And, and did you come in right at the beginning? Uh, with Damn Yankees, yes. Uh, and and she loves me. Spider Woman was interesting because I came in after um, after they had already played in Toronto for quite some time and, and before it went to London, and they were struggling with the same kind of situation. Uh, how does the da how does the dance connect to the piece? And it really hadn't been solved, and it's the, it was the la last thing to sort of fit into place. It, we, we worked very hard at trying to connect. It. I mean, I think uh, they did a production and purchase that was done where um, there was one specific story that was being told with these with the movies that that, that the, uh, the character of Aurora was in, and. Uh, then they decided when they had Cheetah, they said, well, it's Cheetah. So Cheetah will take care of it. We'll just do a big number for Cheetah. But uh yeah, well, we go back you know? to Sally Marr a little bit with this. I mean, here, you know, when you're, you, you have a, in a sense, yeah. a superstar mm -hmm. choreographically. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's not like you have a quarter ballet. When you have Cheetah Rivera, you have, uh, you know, I imagine a lot of tailoring had to go on. You had the double thing of having a superstar to work with dancer me. and the, the storyline as well that had to mesh. It's interesting because Cheetah is a superstar, but she wanted to be an actress. She wanted to be part of the piece. And she would say, I don't want to go out and do my club act. I don't want to go out and just dance. And they, they and because they had Cheetah said, well, we've taken care of that part of the, of the show. And it hadn't been taken, it hadn't taken care of. And we, we, had to, we had to connect her to the rest of the piece. We had to give her something to play as an actress. We had to further the plot in some way with her, with, with what she was doing, and, and and find a persona that connected to the world, you know. So this is what this is what I was able to do when I came into the show, and and that's all I worked on. But it's funny, even with these brilliant people that, that were working on that piece, that was one of the hardest things to sort of find. You know? How many different shows can you be at work at uh, at the same time? <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> it's amazing to me. I don't you know how that happened. I mean. Yeah. Uh, uh, Spider Woman was previewing at the same time I was in rehearsals for She Loves Me, and um, wow. the only way that the only way that was able to happen is that uh, Hal Prince decided we weren't going to do any changes really between London and New York. So New York was really just about teching the show. We had didn't have much to do besides that. We were just repeating what we had done. It was the same cast. So that was the only way I was able to do that. Now, have you got a couple of shows that you're already at work on that won't be here for a year? Or, <laughs> 
I'm working. I'm developing a new piece with Hal Prince now, mm -hmm. a new a new show, and um, that'll be for '95 or '96. You know, who knows when it will be for? I mean, yeah. we're doing a workshop now, and so you never know. You sort of hope that it, it can be, mm -hmm. you know, developed and then and, and move at its own pace. You know. Like Rob said something I thought was interesting about playing, about everyone getting out to play in collaboration, and I, I think the most important thing is being able to fail in front of people mm -hmm. and giving a bad idea. Uh, Joan and Aaron would sit in a room and we both we'd look at each other and we'd say, "Okay, just say it. Just say it. Just say it. it's terrible. Say it. Say a terrible idea." <laughs> and we had to get past the idea because a lot most of it's not you're going to say the first idea is not going to be good mm -hmm. but that would lead Aaron to say something or me to say something and Joan to fix up we but often start by saying okay this is completely the wrong idea good. say it. but yeah right yeah. and that's and that's but I think that 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 takes a long time to be able to be in a room with people mm -hmm. to to be terrible it's just because you kind I, of trust is what you and for an actor too when, I, when I'm directing you know I'll say I'll say to Joan do it badly you know, do it now. Just, just do it. I know it's going to be terrible. Just do something really terrible. But then we get past the first one, and then the second one's better. But it's the fear of starting, I think, sometimes that that um, that is difficult. I was going to say we. Uh, I think that's really important. You know, we ended up having such a good time. Like I would go to rehearsals, and it would be like going to play. You know, all these fabulous actors with lots of ideas, and you never know where a good idea is going to come from. And definitely, the one thing leads to another. Uh, game plan works. I mean, it just happens. That once you start, everyone starts talking, everyone starts contributing ideas. You And then as a director, I think, your job is to edit all these ideas into a cohesive mm -hmm. thing. But it's not your job to have all the ideas. <laughs> and I was very relieved when I <laughs> discovered that. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> that it's not your responsibility to make everything up. It's right. your responsibility as a group of artists. Well, that That's was the so concept different. in uh, Laughter in the 23rd Floor, for example. Uh, the writers all sitting around. <clears throat> Everybody just spouting out anything that they could think of, mm -hmm. and from that came the thought or the idea that one thought would work or play. Yes. And I, I guess you need all of that. I don't. Is, is there enough of that now? You need it unless you're Edward Albee, unless you're Lillian Hellman. Uh -huh. There are a ha handful of uh, playwrights, for example, who work in absolute isolation and bring in a finished piece of work. That could never happen in a musical, of course, but, oh, yeah. but in a straight play, yes. But I wonder whether um, Edward Albee, whose play Martin and I saw last night, 312 Women, which is astonishing, I don't think he's really alone, because when you see 312 Women, he, the other collaborator in that play is most definitely the experiences he's had with his mother. Oh, his, mo his mother's in the play. And, right. and, and the behavior and all of that is there. So there's this unseen collaboration that I think writers, some writers, are not owning up to. And I think that's a very important and powerful force. He's oh, not really in that room alone. I was just thinking, though, in respect to, uh, in, the, in the world of the arts, uh, the idea that you can suggest, this is terrible, this is a rotten idea, but let's try it. Well, if you're a poor devil of a novelist, you're not, you don't have that liberty. In fact, if you say, we'll do something wrong now, and it gets into print, you're surely done for. And the same way, it's unimaginable that an artist painting a canvas could be sharing that canvas with anybody else, or even taking advice from anybody else. Uh, and, and you're right to say that, of course, in fiction, uh, there's an army of ghosts who are being represented uh, either on the stage or in, in a novel or short story. But the other forms of art are so lonely uh, in, in terms of the single uh, person of talent trying to produce a work of art that will be a finished accomplishment. And what was great about the theater is, of course, the collaboration is also loving, affectionate, angry, whatever else it may be, 
But even if you fail on Broadway, as I did once many years ago, I was considered an accepted figure because I had failed. At least I'd got there. <laughs> and now in memory, we all hug and kiss each other, all of us who were involved in Robert Whitehead and all the people. And, and we think in some strange way, out of the failure came the success of our relationship. Interesting. Uh, and, and that we have always. That's the, I, I remember when I was uh, working on Master Harold and uh, the same producing team, it was Manny Eisenberg producing it for New York, and he was also producing a Neil Simon play at the same time. And Athel Fugard, who writes without a collaborator, I mean, and he, it's, it's in long hand and it's in his own script, and when he puts the period on the play, that's the play. It is not workshopped, it is not rewritten, it is perhaps with the actors a little bit changed, but minutely changed. And he was hearing Neil Simon had one of the, uh, the Broadway Bound trilogy, you know, and, and scenes were going in and out, and he was totally perplexed by this. Mm -hmm. He could not fathom that they were changing the play in process, that it didn't come out. Athol's just come out the way I, they I, are. I think that's, a, that's very much a function I have seen uh, in other countries. I, th I see it, I, uh, and I think whether, whether it's South Africa, I see it certainly in Russia. Mm -hmm. I've seen it in, in other societies, maybe not so much in England, but, but that's what you know, it is. The playwright writes it, it's there, then it's up to the actors and the director to do it. Mm -hmm. Blackout, nothing yes, else, yes, no yes. collaboration. It's a very, it's a, it's a, I think it's a very, this, what, going back, I think this collaborative thing is a very American theater. Mm -hmm. Uh, way of working. I am a, and also the one the one element that that has been just hinted at, 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 but I think is really vitally important in terms of the process is you talk about the ability to fail in a, in the living room where you're chucking ideas across at one another. The need that we all have, I think, is the ability to fail anonymously someplace other than in New York, which we, which we are rarely given an opportunity to do. So that now the process becomes one of a reading which ultimately is spoon-fed to somebody who may do a workshop, who would then theoretically take it to its next stage, and so that, the, that that process has changed so dramatically in the last 20 years. First show that I did went out of town, went into rehearsal, went out of town, came into town. I mean, that well, basically was, were, was how it went. Your changes were made out of town. Well, but, but you're also your changes were made publicly. Uh, your changes were made with, with Ernie seeing, seeing us uh, and, and reviewing us. Uh, Ernie fortunately was one of the one of the few critics that that we would go to Philadelphia and get reviewed by, who understood conceptually that we were not done. Now you could go to another town and get creamed on your first performance as though you were ready mm -hmm. after having only been in rehearsal for four weeks, and did not take. The, the concept of the fact that you were working toward is what, what you must do as a director. You must say on day one of rehearsal or even on the first day of the preview, this is not the opening night, folks. We still have a long way to go. We don't have the luxury often of the long way to go. The well, they should, be, they should understand, and, I, and many of them now, now do. I'm talking a, a, a while ago. Uh, did not understand that, that, that it wasn't finished, it didn't come full-blown off the page and, and, and was ready to, you know, uh, to be seen, to be heard. The audience gives us back much more than you can ever, 
than, than I think the audience realizes. Uh, and it's not, an indiv it's not individuals. I think it was Moss Hart who said that the audience as singular individuals are fools. The audience as a collective body is a genius. Mm -hmm. And the truth of that statement is very, very much in evidence. You put something up on its feet and 200 or 2,000 people are going to tell you something and you are going to behave based on that. You know, even after the writer says, well, let's just try it one more night. It didn't work. But So after the third night, you have to turn around and say, uh, yes, it has to be fixed. But the audience is a vital collaborator. And you're talking about the value of the preview audience. I'm talking about the value of any kind of an audience looking well, at your let's work. Let's talk in a, a little bit about preview audience. What, is it, what does it teach you? What does it give you, preview audience? How much do you listen to it? Oh, I, I listen to it a lot. I mean, we've, we've, um, uh, we've made... You're, you're both in preview. Yes. Now. I yeah. think we all listen a lot. Mm -hmm. If we don't, we're silly. Yeah. 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 You I mean, sit, sit amongst them and you... Right. They tell you something. Yeah. Yeah, like you say, nobody... It really doesn't help to talk to individuals that much. I mean, you really sit there and you know. I mean, if they all go, oh, you know, you know, you got to get rid of that line, <laughs> which we did yesterday. <laughs> and you have to learn to read if they're quiet because they're attentive. Yes. And getting information, are they quiet because they're bored and about to go to sleep? And usually not just quiet for coughs and rustles. <laughs> no, there was an old, there was an old saying that people yeah. are coughing, then you know, no, they're bored. Yeah. They're not being attentive. And, and but you, 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 you started previews in New York. You didn't go out of time. Right. But see, that's again one of the, I mean, we're going to end up talking about money and how wonderful it would be not to have a panel discussion where you don't end up talking about the the impact of the of the buck on how you can get a show on today, um, but but it's it, one of the most difficult things in the world to be able to do is to throw out things that are working for the for for other other reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the uh, traps is there's an you can have an enormously successful moment, a laugh, a joke, what have you, but it's not the right tone. It's not the right level. It disturbs the <coughs> moment that is that is coming. So you have to be really. It, who is it? It's it's Emlyn Williams' great line. I, saw, I suddenly sound like Robert Kennedy <laughs> <laughs> calling to all of these references to mine. But it, it's the it's. I, I collaborated with Richard Rogers, and one of the first thing that he, things that he ever told me about how he worked with Oscar Hammerstein, which was, I guess, his. Uh, need to tell me how he was going to work with me uh, was that he said that Emlyn Williams, who was a great friend of, of, of Dick and Oscar's, came to, uh, to see South Pacific, which was in terrible trouble wherever it was in Washington or Philadelphia, and ultimately began to help Josh Logan make changes and fixes in the, in, in the project. And Emlyn Williams' line was, to, to, to all of them, he said, I will take this assignment on if you all agree to drown your favorite children. <laughs> That's right. And it's one of the great 
lesson, it should be a Whitman sampler uh, for all of us in the theater because that is one of the great lessons that you learn. Sir Arthur Quilla Couch, who nobody reads anymore. Who? So we have seen, <laughs> Brendan knows who it is. Right? I pronounce it Cooch. Okay. Ah, well. <laughs> almost that same thing in The Art of Writing where he says, murder your darlings. Same thing. I think that was William Faulkner, too. Well, <laughs> he also gets credit. He probably read, read, he probably read Cooch. I don't, know. I don't know about anybody else, but the, the problem I'm having in previews, or, or one of them, is just being fresh to the material, <laughs> is watching it night after night and just kind of not numbing out to it and, and, and really really needing the, the uh, someone going, you know that really is terrible, the, instead, of, instead of, oh, it's getting better, you know what I mean? It's going to be great tomorrow, you know? Uh, and that, I don't, I don't know about how the other gentlemen feel about this, but one I just, I, I get kind of That was the, one of the hardest things for me. We, we had the good fortune to get to go out of town, we went to Houston, Texas, and did 50 performances of Beauty and the Beast out there. And it got to the point where the producers one day bought me a ticket to the movies, and they said, guess what? You're going to the movies right now, you know? <laughs> and just had me be away for, for a matinee in an evening, skip a couple, and boy, best thing I could have done, because you come back and all of a sudden you're seeing a little bit of the bigger picture what the audience is seeing, and not that her shoe has a crack on the heel, and that the scenery has a, you know, you just get, I got so focused on the whole thing. All the little details that I didn't get to see the whole experience. So when we came to New York, I actually took some days away, mm -hmm. which was really hard. It was like I'd be in my apartment climbing the walls, yeah, knowing they were there. doing the show, and just, I'm not going to go back, I'm not going to go there, I'm not going to go there. We were lucky enough with Damn Yankees, actually, to be out of town at the Old Globe Theater, uh, and we did a full run there. And then had time before we came to New York, and it's That's fabulous great. because you can really then during that time reevaluate everything you've done and, 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 and really see how you can shape it and, and make it better for the folks. And, and then we were, went back into rehearsal, and it's the, you know, that's the way to do it. That's really the way to do it. You need a, you need a couple chances at a musical, Tommy, even an old Tommy one like Dan. I do that. We switch off. I say, who's driving tonight? You know, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so make sure one of us is there. Yeah. But well, you uh, know, this is interesting too because Tommy Toon is both a choreographer, you know, as well as a director. Yeah. And uh, I want to, I think we should. Get we're going to have to hold that. Hold Tommy Toon <laughs> when we come back because you're going to have to stop now for just a minute, stretch, and come right back again and continue this panel. And, and there are lots of questions that you haven't answered. You might have thought that you've answered all of them. But believe me, there are. We're continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. Today's seminar is on the playwright-director, and I'm not going to say anything more than just that, so we can go right back to where we left off with Brian, um, Brendan talking about the role of the collaborator or working alone. Do you want to continue? Yes, well, during the interval, a member of the audience asked me, tell me, uh, do directors audition to become directors? Now, uh, Ronnie, you... you you were invited to do so by a fortunate circumstance, but how do most directors get started? Well, I, I don't know. Most do. Uh, now scripts, luckily and happily, come to me, and so I'm able to, you know, uh, I'm able to, um, you know, read them. Uh, but I think there's an inevitable audition process anyway when you meet the writer, just to to see if if you're compatible and if if your ideas are, in a way, enhancing of what he wants, his vision, or if you're not in the same 
you know, you're not seeing things the same way, in which case you're probably better off parting company. But do producers often bring a writer and a director together, or how does that happen? In my experience, the days of, like, producers having a property and then, you know, calling directors or, you know, the David Merrick of buying a property and then calling a songwriter, I, I don't experience that from, from the position I'm in. I don't know if it exists anymore. It doesn't. I, I don't mm -hmm. assume it does. It doesn't exist anymore. Usually it's, a, it's, a, it's an author who has a reading scheduled somewhere that, you know, that they want your input on and then you build a, a collaboration with them and then it goes on or a, or a theater calling or, or sometimes a producer calling with a property that, mm -hmm. uh, that they, um, that they well, want. It's an intensely personal thing. Then. Yes. Well, uh, we should talk about Larry and, and Peter. How about Tommy Toon, and how did that... Well, you know, the first show we did, did together, yeah. um, uh, we, we had actually done the show at the actor Studio and developed it there, and Tommy came to see it. And I actually asked him to do it with me at the actor Studio, and he was busy doing a show out of town, which uh, I think he left. Or, and he, he got back in time to see what we put on, and he said, yeah, this is great. I'd love to be what part of it. What made you ask him to do that with you? Well, Not just he because the, he was from Texas. He was, yeah. Really? Very much so. <laughs> he was the only okay. choreographer I knew. <laughs> no, really, uh, he, was, he and my wife uh, went to high school together, and uh, they were the co-presidents of the Thespian Society <laughs> at Lamar High School. And... Uh, so Tommy actually saw, I mean, Carlin saw Tommy on a bus and she was carrying one of our babies and uh, she said, Tommy, we got this new show, you want to, you got to do, do it with us. And so we ended up doing it together and um, it was uh, a very good collaboration and so we decided to go back. In the meantime, I went off to make movies and Tommy became uh, uh, a Broadway. very big <laughs> deal on Broadway and has been very successful. And, and, uh, uh, so we decided we'd get back together and um, and uh, do this new show. And he was he was more involved in the early parts of the show this time, although he had a tremendous influence on the other show after he came in in the musical uh, parts of it. And uh, uh, I would just what uh, uh, Rob was saying about uh, working with the choreographer and the music department and the, the one of the hardest things, the toughest questions from a, a writer's point of view, director's point of view, to the choreographer, it seems to me is, uh, well, here's the musical. This is we think this should be musical, and they would say why, and uh, why should they sing and dance? They don't have. Do they have any reason to sing and dance? <laughs> and uh, so you have to prove. You have to write it into that power of the musical. You get to the point where you can't. Uh, you can't talk anymore, and you need to express yourself in a more vivid way. And um, I think that's when you get into the musical. But we spent hours. Uh, Larry drove Larry crazy, uh, you know, <laughs> trying to get into the last number of the first act of, of yeah. this new show, uh, where we'd do it, and Tommy and I'd look at you and say, no, that's not right. Let's, can we add a little word here? What about another sentence? Would that get us up to that point? At what stage did Tommy say that? At what stage were you when, oh, when Tommy we were first it? working, when we were first, first putting writing. it together, you know, and after the musical number had been built by the uh, composer uh, and the idea was there, and we would, what, what he calls the gazenta, you know, uh, how do you go, how, uh, the gazenta, it goes into, how do you get into the musical number? And uh, so 
you uh, it's it's a, it's the hardest thing and I see so many especially old-fashioned musicals they talk up to a certain point and suddenly the music starts and they start singing and you say wait, wait a minute wait a minute how'd they get there and um, we just literally hours of you know well let's add this little thing maybe if that'll kick it up to another notch and um, also uh, is a musical number going to further the plot or not if it doesn't uh, it's not a very good musical number it seems to me and uh, and the audience tends to tune out you sit there and look at it we had a number in our show which uh, uh, <coughs> Everybody just kind of sat there and watched, you know, and waited until it was over and got to the next thing. And we said, well, what's wrong with that? And then one day I finally said, there's no plot in it. There's no story in it. And Tommy says, great. Now, let's, okay, <laughs> that's the answer. So we wrote, the composer wrote all new lyrics for the number and put it in the next day. And, uh, and it makes a big difference. You're, you're, the audience is saying, yes, I see what he's saying. He's talking about this character, and he's moving on to the next plot line and uh, it, it, it's a uh, it's Martin you were very positive when you picked up and said it doesn't work that way anymore with the producer getting a property and going I want to go back to that Let's well it, 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 uh, again the old days when there were producers who functioned who had offices whose uh, prime responsibility was to wake up in the morning and say I am going to get this play on and that's all I do I don't care whether or not I sell 3,000 pairs of jeans today um, or whatever it is that their other job is uh, or, or how they or, or they would go about the business of raising money. It just does not happen that way anymore. David Merrick, good, bad or indifferent, simply would option properties uh, and he would then put Hal David and Burt Backrack together and he'd ask Neil Simon to write the book and the apartment became Promises, Promises. And he did the same thing through, I would say, practically every single... He, he optioned Pagnol, he got Harold Rome, it became Fanny. I mean, it was, a, it was as simple and elegant as that. Yeah, life was simpler then, and, altogether. But those guys, with the possible <coughs> exception of one or two people, don't do that anymore. Uh, musicals are generated more often than not by the composer, the lyricist, who are working together as a team possibly, or if it's a, a Jerry Herman who gets an idea and, and does both and instigates the entire thing, or a director who, who, who instigates a property, or a book writer who comes and makes a collab. You come with formed collaborations now, much more so than, than the producer making the collaboration happen. Uh, and and that, that simply has turned us all around. So we have become, we who are making shows happen, uh, have to now go out and find somebody to produce the work that we have written. It wasn't that way. It was the other way around. Uh -huh. But there were also producers in the old days, like Winter Bames or Gilbert Miller or people like that, for whom this was their natural career and their entire and life, exactly. and they made money out of it, right. and they lived very well, right. and, and they had a kind of an aristocratic presence, uh, and they were benefactors of the theater as well as in entrepreneurial in the theater. Altogether right. differently in the old days, because I was interested when you said that you, Bert Lara came in and it lasted one week on Broadway. 
And but he was the, a big star, and yet... It still didn't have an impact. I mean, you can't make them go to see what they don't want to go and see. Right, but in the constantly final we hear today, oh, stars are, are not treated with respect on Broadway, or no star will come to Broadway because they'll open and close in a short time. This well, I don't think, I don't think that's, that's true. You guys have a star. Uh, you certainly have somebody whose TVQ is in, 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 in the world is one of the 20 most recognizable human beings in, uh, on, on, on the tube. Uh, now, unfortunately, you, it's very difficult to get stars in the bankable sense of the word, motion picture stars. You can, well, let, let, let's put it this way. I don't think you can name five producers who can get five stars to fund a show. If you said today... We haven't got enough time. That. If you said no, but I'm seriously. If you said today, I I would bring, I have Carol Channing. Maybe you could instantly capitalize, without having to go through the trouble of saying, I have. If I have Barbara Streisand, I can right. capitalize the show. <laughs> but how many? But how many of those? I mean, what I think of a star is a star. Catherine Hepburn, no matter what she ever brought to town, sold out for the amount of time she was in it. That's a star. Good reviews, bad reviews. Good play, usually bad play. Doesn't matter. But that's, also that's the other thing. Star. The other thing is that that they don't want to commit to the length of time right. that yeah. that to get the money to, back to to oh, return yeah. the, the the financing. George, what did you say? Oh, I, I was I was. Taking that, but I, I wanted to get back a minute because something has been going through my mind since we were talking about that in, in terms of, of auditioning directors. And I, uh, I wanted to get back to that uh, subject a little bit more because I do understand that the star issue, God knows, is, and it's a big one, but it's a whole other seminar, I think, in, in, a, in a funny way. I wanted to know what uh, makes a choreographer. And I wanted to refer to, to Rob because there is that in, in my head, I mean, Tommy Toon is a director and a choreographer. Uh, what it, it's a kind of a funny hybrid. We were talking a little bit at the interval about that. Uh, wh how did you become a choreographer? You were a dancer, uh, and, and but what is the mindset that moves a dancer into becoming a choreographer and not just a pair of legs? Fear of <laughs> <laughs> fear of yeah, losing the legs. Losing your legs. Yeah. No, uh, no. Uh, I started in, in the ensemble. You know, uh, in uh, the revival of Zorba. Um, that, with Anthony Quinn and then uh, the following show I did I, I was the dance captain and I think that happens a lot with, with choreographers you're involved as a dance captain which oh, is, yeah, what's a dance captain? It's, it's, it's the person who takes care of the show represents the choreographer once the show once the show opens and the choreographer leaves the dance captain becomes the eyes of the show and keeps it intact and uh, teaches replacements and so forth and so on so you, be, you, you sort of you're part of the team um, as it's running and uh, I was the dance captain of a show called The Rink, which with um, with Liza and Cheetah. So it was like baptism by fire, really. Because I was this 23-year-old kid, going, you know, knocking on Liza's or Cheetah's dressing room, saying, "You know, you really screwed up tonight. You really should be doing this instead." And, <laughs> but um, and but then actually, um, and and you, I, uh, Graziella Danielle was the choreographer, and I assisted her uh, on the Mystery of Edwin Drood. Uh, that was sort of the next step. I think I sort of took the natural progression. I don't know if all people do this, but that's sort of what happened for me. I was the dance captain and assistant. And, um, and then I choreographed a piece uh, down at the Coconut Grove Playhouse uh, of the rink. I choreographed the rink, sort of my own stuff. And because producers say, oh, you did the rink, so you can choreograph it kind of thing. 
and um, and I began. You know, it's interesting with choreographers. You um, you sort of, in a strange way, have to be an author in some ways. You know, because well, you're it's you're interesting. you from dancer to choreographer and from actor to director here in this, uh, so that you're talking about really working your way, whether it's up or working mm -hmm. your way in. It's usually you, with. I mean, it's sides. usually with a, a, another choreographer. It's 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 somebody who's teaching you uh, how to how to. And, and Graziella Daniel was really sort of the woman who, who who taught me the process and how it works. And and that's how you sit in the theater and you watch something being lit and you and you find out how things progress. And and that's how you learn, you know. And that was sort of sort of my my route. Uh, I had an opportunity. I was an assistant for a long time to uh, Jerry Gutierrez and Tommy Walsh and uh, Jack Hofsis you know, invaluable experience just for that very thing. Even if you're just sitting there with your notepad, you can, if you're, uh, you know, so inclined, learn a lot from just watching mm -hmm. and listening. Mm -hmm. You know, you talked about auditioning, and, and as a director, be audition or is audition, and I repeated it several times in our seminar, a very well-known actor who came out of Yale and said that, when he was up for an audition uh, uh, for a, a show, he would insist upon auditioning the director after having read the script so that, that he would know that the director had the same feeling for the part as he had. And if they weren't on the same wavelength, he felt there was no use working with this man. Everyone on independently the, wealthy. Man. Well, <laughs> <laughs> he was uh, a very lucky young man, and that was yeah, uh, I, uh, I would say anybody uh, on the <laughs> seminar. He could lose you know, a lot of work. Yeah. To have that yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I would say it works uh, in reverse, also somewhat, in that uh, when the playwright is auditioning, so to say, the director, mm -hmm. the director is also, and I know I am, I, when I'm talking to a writer, whether it be a playwright or a, or a film writer or a producer, I'm, uh, I'm feeling them out to see if we see this the same way because mm -hmm. there's nothing more miserable than getting into a situation where you want to make one movie or one play and everybody else wants to make a different one. So if you see it's not going that way, it's best just to say thank you very much, you know, mm -hmm. to go your own way. We have so many questions that are to be asked here. We're going to start right now with them. Hi, my name is Mohammed. I have a question for Mr. Price. How is uh, directing a one-woman show different from directing a full-length play? What are some of the logistics involved? Well, um... Oh my gosh, uh, as I said, we, we are a one-woman show in that Joan is the only one that speaks, but uh, there are three other characters who, as, as I say, portray the ghosts of all of, all of the other men and, and women, in fact, in her life. Um, it's very tedious. I found that I, I, I worked best working uh, five hours straight in, uh, instead of a seven out of eight and a half hour day because Joan would, though has more energy than, than probably everyone in this room put together. She does <laughs> two television shows. Uh, she will do two shows for us today having come from two television shows. Um, and she does that uh, several times a week. Um, but tired she got. And um, I'm trying to think of what else is different. Uh, unfortunately, you don't have the relief of other characters coming in and speaking so that they're interrelating. So you have to be very careful about um, about getting the story across in a way that is in a, that, that varies it enough in terms of the performance from the actors so that it doesn't get monotonous. Um, I can't be any more specific than that, Erin. Yeah, I don't know. Is good. there I anything else you can add to that? Yes. Oh, well, I think just to add on the on the writing end of that, part of the difficulty of structuring a, 
a play like this is that you don't have dialogue. You you have to convey a lot of information. It's all exposition. By she has to do by cleverly that. hiding the exposition right. in monologue and using using her role in in multiple ways. You and can't talk about her before she gets on stage, you know. And then she comes on, and we have some information. She, you know, it's it's all her. She's the only one who can do it for you. Right. Mildred Clinton, actress, low one on the totem pole in the presence of the gods. <laughs> when we're out there under the light, uh, who really gets the fine, final word in, in the choice of the performer? Because we have the director, the producer, the writer, and they're all important in getting this together. You mean in casting? In, yes, in the, ca in the final choice of the cast. Once, once we read, once we're, we're there. Well, I mean, I, the answer is, is uh, there is a there is a collaboration. Mm -hmm. There's no question about that. But in the final analysis, there has to be some aspect of, of deference to, to the director who believes that he, will, he or she will be able to get the kind of performance out of that individual actor that he or she expects to get. So y you have to assume that somebody is indeed steering the ship yeah. at, that particular, at that particular moment. Uh, but it, it, it comes down to consent from consensus. I don't think it. I don't think it's an arbitrary decision that you make in, in, at, at the minute somebody walks in. We go through the process. I think it's very important to define what it is you need from that character, as a director, with your playwright, and the producer to really make a very specific. Uh, decision as to what's the most important thing you need out of that part before you make that decision. You but know? you also have to be, but you also have to be really open because sometimes you say, "I want a six-foot blonde who 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 can tap dance in this particular role, and a three-foot brunette who just <laughs> blows you away at the end of the yeah, day right, comes in." So you have to be smart enough to make. I guess your second choice looked like you meant it all along. Uh, no, I, I mean the soul of the character has to be in that actor. Is what oh, I'm absolutely. That's what I'm saying. You really have to know what that is. I also you think there's, there's something when there's a lot of cooks in, in the pot making decisions. And I think sometimes what happens and when I see shows where a dull person has been cast, and what I, I'm coming to believe is, is that anyone extraordinary, if there are eight people choosing, someone will hate. If someone is truly unusual, yeah, you'll get someone going, I just can't stand them. And so what you sometimes wind up is is the blandest choice. Everyone says, well, I don't really... We that, call it the blender of, choice. Yeah. Everybody puts it in, it's the blender right. and choice. It's, and it's sometimes not the most interesting choice, and I feel sorry that I wind up with something colorless as opposed to something extraordinary that maybe some people wouldn't like, but that might ignite or galvanize the night mm -hmm. because too many people were uh, uh, f uh, scared. In 1963, in 1963, I did a disastrous musical called Hotspot with Mary Rogers, Dick's daughter, uh, and had seen a wonderful girl in a cabaret downtown, and, uh, I think it was the Blue Angel, I'm not actually sure, and worked with her for two weeks, as did Mary. And Morton DaCosta, God rest his soul, was the director, uh, and we brought her into the audition and she sang three of the songs, learned them, uh, did five of the scenes with the stage manager and at the end of the audition DaCosta said thank you very much and just sent her off uh, 
And we had to go and apologize to her manager, who was Marty Ehrlichman, to tell Miss Streisand that <laughs> Mr. DaCosta did not believe that anybody would want to kiss her. <laughs> and that was why Hotspot didn't have Barbara Streisand in it. <laughs> My name is Jean Golden. I'm here as part of a sabbatical program for teachers from the Board of Ed of uh, LaGuardia Community College and Theater Experience, and we're, loved, we're uh, really glad to be here. My question is for Mr. Marshall. I'd like to know uh, how much influence Mr. Abbott had in terms of his direction in Damn Yankees on you. Um, well, I guess you all know that he's 106 years old, and he'll be 107 in June. And he's smarter than you can possibly imagine. And uh, he had a lot to do with it, actually. Um, he lives in Florida for the most part. and. Um, and he, we, we saw him, uh, he, he came and saw the show out in San Diego um, and had a lot to say about the show before it came to New York. Uh, it was tricky because we were revising his book. I mean, this is a revisal, they're calling them now, as opposed to a revival, because it's, there's a revision involved. And so we, and uh, he's unbelievably lucid. He, he, um, I was summoned to his <laughs> to his room to talk to him, and he, he had some very specific questions that he wanted answered, and uh, and we we spoke about them, and and the such and, as yeah, such was, as yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, he wanted to know specifically why in this production two lost souls was done um, with the devil and Lola as opposed to with Joe Hardy and Lola. He wanted to know why that was done. We explained to him a series of reasons, one being that um, originally they had Ray Walston, who was not a musical performer. We were looking for a place for Victor Garber to sing more. Um, we are also, in terms of the story, uh, concerned about the fact that Joe Hardy, after having a romp on the town with Lola, would go back to his wife. Is that sort of kosher these days? And so forth. There was a series of reasons. And he listened and he said, hmm, okay. Well, he said, you know, uh, I don't necessarily agree, but show me, kind of thing. And so, so he listens, he's unbelievably smart, he had a lot to say. He said to us once, he said, um, you know, I'm not, I'm too old to fight, but I'm not too old to help. Mm, and that's, what, a he, wonderful that's, what, he, that's yeah. what he did for us. Wonderful. Wonderful. I'm Phyllis Robinson. This is directed to Martin Charnin. Uh, when you had the opportunity to bring Annie Warbucks into the Variety Arts Theater and you had to do some very severe cutting, how painful was that for the creative team and how did you handle it? Well, uh, it wasn't painful at all because it was the end of a, of, of a very long five and a half year process that started uh, with our m musical uh, Annie 2, which in effect I suppose you could call the Exxon Valdez of musicals <laughs> um, that ended up costing uh, a, a mess of money, and uh, but we then went back to the drawing board and knew that we were it was too big and overproduced and had to be re reduced and reduced further along the the way. So the first production that we had that reconnected it to what it ultimately ended up being was one that we did at good speed. So we were we were living in a in a in a sort of uh, sharper image version of the show under any circumstances from the time that that the first production ended. It was not difficult to cut it at all. The actual physical uh, 
problems that the theater presented. It's a black box. Uh, that's basically what it is. It had no proscenium, had no pit. We had to construct a theater along with, along with that. That was the harder, hardest part of it, making all of those little pieces uh, come together. But getting rid of char characters and getting rid of, of, of orphans uh, and getting rid of uh, <laughs> just was, it was just numerical choices that had and to be killing made. off all those darlings that you had. <laughs> and this is the time when I'm again have to say it's the end of the playwright director's seminar of working in the theater, which is coming to you from CUNY, and we haven't touched on dramaturgs. You're going to have to take even a whole a whole seminar on the role of the dramaturg. It's not enough, just those little bit of tidbits that we got. And everything that is being done here and is being said is part of the Wings all year round programs. We not only have the seminars that you have seen today on the playwright director, and the wonderful men here show that the American Theatre Wing has absolutely no bias about anyone and that we find talent wherever it is even though it might be just all male they've been simply splendid here and one of the other programs that the wing has of which i'm very proud is our introduction to broadway program which brings students into the broadway theater and this is done with the cooperation of the board of education and the producers they're marvelous and the cast that meet with the producers after with the the students afterwards. The American Theatre Wing is proud to present all of these programs. Thank you for being here.